Well, will you open with me in your Bibles to two places today? First, uh, we're going to read from Psalm 2. And then we will uh, continue in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26 and verses 1 through 5. But first to Psalm 2. Let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then to the Gospel according to Matthew, and to chapter 26. And we'll read verses... 1 through 5 together. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. And to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, maybe months ago now, I was laughing with Dan Tavern about some of the things that he has witnessed over the years. Uh, as the head of security at the hospital, people who thought they were getting away with something, people who thought they were being very clever, clever and very stealthy, uh, but all the while their actions were being caught on camera. They were being recorded and reviewed and would be responded to by hospital security. Uh, everything from faking a workplace injury, uh, suddenly falling down, Uh, or stealing drugs, or pretending to deliver food. All manner of things that people thought they were very clever about, and we couldn't help but chuckle as he recounted some of these attempts at stealth, all plotted in vain. Psalm 2, the psalmist says something like that about the Messiah. He wrote that the nations would rage... And that the peoples would plot in vain, that the kings of the earth would set themselves 
and their rulers would take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally against his Christ. But he goes on to say that he who sits in the heavens laughs. Their stealth is not stealth to him. He holds them in derision. To hold someone in derision means to ridicule them for their folly. In spite of their best laid plans, in spite of their secret schemes and plots, the Lord who is enthroned in heaven will do all of his holy will. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. And it was his good pleasure to use these very schemes and to turn them for good. As he says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If you fast forward in time to the book of Acts, uh, the church would interpret this psalm as they prayed in, psalm, in Acts chapter 4. They said, Sovereign Lord, you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now listen to how they interpret that. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What the rulers and the Gentiles and the peoples plotted was in the end only what the Lord's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And what was prophesied by the Spirit in Psalm 2 and was interpreted by the Spirit in Acts 4 is recounted for us today in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, It is the subject of the next two chapters of Matthew. And these first five verses of Matthew 26 really set the stage for this divine comedy that we call the gospel, where the foolishness of God confounds the wisdom of this world as the Son of Man is being handed over to be crucified while God sits enthroned and laughs and holds the peoples in derision. And even as they conspire against Christ here at the Feast of Passover, they are unwittingly bringing about the fulfillment of all that that feast promised. As in Christ, God's true Passover lamb is sacrificed so that his blood will make atonement for sins. So as we look at these first five verses today and as we are reflecting on Uh, the way the Shorter Catechism calls God's most holy, wise, and powerful providence, we are reflecting on the greatest provision ever made, the greatest providence to his people as he provides his Son. And so as we look at this passage, then we'll consider it just under two points today. First, the Passover prediction of Christ, and secondly, the priestly plot of Caiaphas. The Passover prediction of Christ and the priestly plot of Caiaphas. Uh, The verses begin with the words, when Jesus had finished all of these sayings. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen this formula in Matthew's gospel, is it? 
In fact, every time Jesus has finished a sermon or finished a discourse, we hear these words uh, after Jesus had finished all of these sayings. So, for example, after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, we read, after he had finished saying all these things, right? And then again, after the Sermon on Mission, and then again at uh, the, the end of his sermon in chapter 13 on the parables. And now again, we have it, but this time it's a little bit different. Because this is the last time he's going to say it. This is Jesus' last sermon. He's concluded all of his public teaching ministry. It's his last sermon in a sense. There's another sense in which the greatest sermon to be preached is the one he's going to live out before his disciples over the course of the next two days. As one commentator put it, the passion or the suffering of Jesus is his final teaching. It is the lesson without which his disciples cannot fully understand his identity. And that passion begins with Jesus' own prediction of it that he makes here in in verse 2. It's actually not the first time that he has made this prediction. He's been making this prediction throughout Matthew's gospel. He made it in almost identical words in chapter 20 as he was turning his face toward Jerusalem. And though it's not the first time, it is the last time. And it is unique in that he links it to the Passover feast. He says, you know that in two days, Passover is coming. Why is it important that Jesus links his death with the Passover? What is the Passover? Uh, Passover was one of the most important feasts in the Jewish calendar. It was a national holiday, it was a religious holiday, and it was a New Year's celebration sort of all rolled up into one. In our context, if you had a single holiday that combined Christmas and the 4th of July and President's Day, that's the kind of big deal that Passover was in Israel. Uh, It was the most defining moment in their history, their Passover and Exodus deliverance from Egypt. It literally reset their calendar. God says, this is going to be the first day of your year from here on out. Passover, your deliverance, this moment is going to redefine the way that you even keep time. Their deliverance from slavery and oppression was celebrated, and it was retold, and it was remembered, and every single year the Lord said, I want you to reenact what happened at Passover. And what happened at Passover? Well, the families were told that they should take a lamb, and on the tenth day of that month, They were to choose a lamb without spot or blemish, and they were to hold that lamb until the 14th day of the month, until Passover day. And then on that day, all of the families of Israel would slaughter that lamb at twilight at the same time. And the blood of that lamb was to be taken. It was to be put over the doorposts of their home because God was going to come through the land of Egypt 
in his wrath by his angel. And he was going to kill the firstborn. He was going to put to death the firstborn in every home that was not covered by the blood of that Passover lamb. As Jesus links his death with this coming celebration of Passover, he is saying something significant about who he is. He is saying what John said about him, that he is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying what Paul says of him, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In linking his death to the death of those lambs, Jesus is making a claim that it is his blood that saves people from the wrath of God. That's what Jesus is doing. And so when Jesus says, in two days, Passover is coming, he's not just talking about the Passover that's been reenacted and retold and celebrated every year. He's also talking about this new Passover. He's talking about this moment that all of history has been building to. Truly, Passover is coming as the Son of Man is going to be delivered up and crucified. Calvin puts it this way. He says, God wished His Son to be slaughtered on the day of Passover, that that old figure should give place to the one sacrifice of eternal redemption. In many ways, Passover is a very fine one-word definition of what the gospel means, of how Jesus saves His people from their sins. Bruner says it's, as good as any other word you might find. Passover. But as good as that word is, there's another really important word in this statement of Jesus, one that is often passed over and does not get the attention that it deserves. In Greek, it is the word paradidatai. The ESV translates it here as delivered over, Some translations translate this word as handed over. And it may be the most important word in Matthew's account of the gospel. He's going to use this word no less than 14 times in the next two chapters. It is the main word that he chooses to explain what is happening as Christ goes to suffer. As one Matthew scholar observes, everybody, it seems, is handing Jesus over to somebody else. Judas hands him over to the high priests. The high priests hand him over uh, to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to the soldiers. The soldiers hand him over to death. From one hand to another hand to another hand. But if we take Jesus' predictions seriously, we must understand that behind all of these human handing overs, there is a sovereign, providential handing over by God Himself. As He hands over His Son to His own judgment. This is a term that when you look at it throughout the Bible... 
If you look, for example, at the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and as you, you look at the way this word is used throughout the New Testament, this is a term that has some very ominous and foreboding qualities to it. It's the term that is used throughout the Septuagint as God hands his people over to judgment because of their sins. It's the term that Paul picks up uh, to speak of when he speaks of God handing people over to a debased mind because of the hardness of their hearts. It's the term that Paul uses when he speaks of handing over false teachers to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here's the point. You don't want to be handed over. One commentator summarizes it like this. In the Bible, a handing over by God is the single most appalling thing that can happen to a human being. If God hands you over to judgment, that is the single most appalling thing that can happen to you. And so that when we read... When Jesus says that the Son of Man, right, the Son of Man, that glorious figure who was prophesied about, to whom the Ancient of Days would give a kingdom and majesty and glory, when we read that the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified, to be shamefully treated, to receive the penalty and death of a slave and a criminal, When we read that he is going to be handed over, we should be repulsed by that. In the same way that Peter was repulsed by it, when Jesus said, I am going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be handed over, and Jesus says, or Peter says, No, that will never happen to you. He can't possibly conceive that God's anointed one would be handed over and be crucified. What is wrong with the world? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do they gather together against the Lord and against his anointed in this way? Of course, they are doing what his sovereign hand and plan predestined should take place. The crucifixion is not an accident of history, it didn't just happen. Isaiah tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? Isaiah answers that as well. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds... We have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You want to know why Jesus is handed over? It's for you. It's because of your sins. It's because of your iniquities. It's because you are like a stubborn, wandering sheep. It's because of me. And yet, what is amazing is that as God works in his providence, he does it through the schemes of men. 
Uh, Peter will reflect on this in Acts chapter 2 as he's preaching the gospel to his fellow countrymen who have just uh, gone through and witnessed all of this. And this is what Peter will say. He says, This Jesus who was delivered up, listen to it, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. See that? That twofold reality. On the one hand, Peter says, he is being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And on the other hand, he says, you have crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And it's those lawless men that are in view in our second point today. Having considered Christ's Passover prediction, let's next consider Caiaphas's priestly plot. As we read in verses 3 through 5, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. I just want you to appreciate the intentionally humorous effect of setting these two things side by side. There's a really thick irony here. No sooner has Jesus just foretold what is going to happen to him, exactly what is going to happen to him, and publicly, he's going to be handed over to be crucified. No sooner has he made this prediction... Then the wheels are set in motion, and the chief priests and the elders of the people, couched in the the language of Psalm 2, are gathering together against the Lord's anointed. They're taking cover in the place, the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. Think about that for a second. This is not nobody, this is the high priest. This is the one who in Israel at this time is God's earthly picture of Christ. That's what he's meant to be. This is the one who goes into the holy place with a breastplate upon him that has all of the names of the tribes of Israel inscribed on these 12 stones so that as he goes into God's presence in the most holy place, he is standing as a representative for every single person in Israel. This is the one who is wearing a turban that has a stone on it that is marked holy to the Lord. This one who is set apart for holiness. This is the one who who offers the sacrifice, the victim, and then brings its blood into the most holy place of the temple to make atonement for sins. This is the one who's plotting against Jesus. This one who himself is a picture of Jesus is the very one that God is going to use To put him to death. The one who offers up the sacrificial victims to make atone for sin is going to offer up the final sacrificial victim to make atonement for sin. 
And so they're plotting. They're thinking about how they might arrest him in stealth. They're sneaking around. I mean, they don't want to arrest him in the middle of the day. They don't want to arrest him in the temple precincts. Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims. There are people everywhere. Instead, they're going to come to the garden. They're going to come in the middle of the night, torches in hand, and bind up the Lamb of God. They're going to do it secretly. They love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And verse 5 tells us why they're doing it secretly. It's because they are afraid of the uproar of the people. In fact, the verb that's used here uh, might be better translated, they kept saying it must not happen at the feast. That's an imperfect of duration. We might say they were insisting that it must not happen at the feast. We can't let this happen at the feast. Whatever we do, however we make this happen, it can't happen there. And they had good reason to be concerned. They they weren't dumb. Jesus was an incredibly popular figure. Not only that, we learn from the, the Hebrew historian Josephus that there were often riots at feasts. Feasts provided an occasion for riots. Josephus comments, for it's on these festive occasions that sedition is most apt to break out. And they knew this. You can understand why, given the swarms of people, the popularity of Jesus, the sort of frenzy of the festival, it would be a perfect storm uh, to arrest him in public in the light of day. If it didn't lead to a riot, it would certainly be far more public than they want. And they want to sweep this under the rug. They want people to forget about Jesus. And so all their energies and all their efforts are bent on keeping it private and hidden from the eyes of the watching world. And the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. And what they do in stealth, they do according to his plans. What they want to keep private will become public. This execution that they want to hide and to hush will in fact, think of this, it will become the most studied, portrayed, recounted, preached, proclaimed event in all of human history so that 2,000 years later, I'm preaching about it, people are listening, and people are rioting. You can't stop the riot. You can't stop the riot. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the psalmist says he's going to speak to them in his wrath. Terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What is that talking about? How is it that through the crucifixion of Jesus, God is setting on Mount Zion his holy hill? Is he talking about earthly Jerusalem, that holy hill? Is he talking about enthroning his son as the Messiah there in the temple? 
No, he's talking about that heavenly temple about which the earthly temple was just a shadowy picture. It was a symbol and a type. And the New Testament says that this is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 13, Paul Paul says this, This he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus from the dead, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The author of Hebrews puts it like this, After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, right? He was enthroned, and he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God takes what they meant for evil, and he turns it for good. He takes the most cruel, most despicable, most unjust event in all of human history, and he transforms it through and through so that it becomes the greatest and most glorious good in all of human history. Judas hands him over to the high priests. The high priests hand him over to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to the soldiers. The soldiers hand him over to death. But I think the most remarkable thing of all is that the Bible teaches us that it is Jesus who hands himself over. And knowing now all that you know about what it means to be handed over, to know that Jesus is not a mere passive player in this. He is not just being acted upon by others. He has taken this messianic mission willingly and readily upon himself. He is actively handing himself over. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down for my sheep. He hands himself over to Judas and then to the high priests and then to Pilate and then to the soldiers and then to the wrath of God. He hands himself over for us. He hands himself over for all those who have been committed into his hands. For all that the Father gives me will come to me and of those who come to me I will lose none. And what is accomplished here? What is accomplished as the Son of Man is being delivered up to be crucified? What is accomplished is the rest of Psalm 2. Through this horrible handing over, God says to his Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. You think about it, we are the nations. We are the ends of the earth. We are the heritage and the possession of the Messiah, of King Jesus. We who are looking to him in faith. The Son freely has granted us this gift of salvation. He has made us his own. He has offered us the forgiveness of sins, this justifying declaration, his sanctifying presence. What a glorious gift. When he handed himself over to the wrath of God, to that cruel mistreatment, he was doing it as the true high priest and as 
the true victim at the same time. And doing it for us, that we might not have to endure that wrath of God. What a glorious gift. And then, combined with that, what a glorious assurance that if God can take this, uh, this terrible evil, and if He can turn it for good, how can He not also take every evil in our lives and every evil in the history of the world and use them for His glorious purposes? Everything will resound to the glory of King Jesus, whether it be to the praise of His glorious mercy in Christ or whether it be to the praise of His glorious justice in Christ. All things will ultimately resolve and resound to the glory of Jesus Christ. And that means that we have to live by faith because things are not as they seem. The world that is scheming and plotting and thinking that they are getting away with things is not. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness and he's given proof to everybody by raising him from the dead. And now he calls everyone everywhere to repent and to believe in the gospel. That is all that is required of us beloved, to receive this gift of God's salvation is to believe and to receive, to turn away from our sins and to turn to Christ for the salvation that he offers. So we must live by faith and not by sight. I woke up this morning and sometimes on Sunday morning I'll, I'll pick sort of a devotional book and someone recently gave me this wonderful little book on, by Ian Hamilton. Thank you for leaving that for me. Uh, and I was reading it this morning and in it was this quote. And I thought, I have to read this this morning. So this is the latest I've ever finished preparing a sermon was this morning when I added this quote. But it's Calvin, and he was commenting on the way that Abraham lives by faith and not by sight. And here's what he says. He says, let us remember that we are all in the same condition as Abraham. Our circumstances are all seeming to be in opposition to the promises of God. His promises to us of immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that he accounts us as just, and yet we are covered with sins. He testifies to us that he is propitious and benevolent to us, and yet outward signs threaten his wrath. What then are we to do? We must close our eyes, disregard ourselves and all things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. When it looks like the whole world around us is set against God and against His anointed, and you look at our, our political things, when you look at uh, the wars and rumors of wars, when you, you look at the injustices in your life and in our city, we, we can begin to believe that God is not on His throne. But that's where we must live by faith and not by sight, especially on a day like today where we contemplate 50 years of this horrific atrocity 
God is not passively sitting by. And though we might not understand why he allows what he allows, we can be confident that he is working all these things together for our good and his glory. Men may plot and plan and scheme, but God is not mocked. He sits in the heavens, and now at his right hand sits Jesus Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and earth have been handed over to him, who handed himself over for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We confess that so often we get worried and anxious about the state of affairs in this world. And yet, Lord, you call us to live by faith and not by sight. You call us to remember that you have planned and purposed to work all things together for good through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us, grant to us the eyes of faith today that we might behold him who was handed over for our sakes, who endured that, that cruel punishment that we deserve and all your wrath poured out upon his head in order that uh, we might be received into your presence. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in this uh, because it is hard for us to live by faith. But build it up in us by your Holy Spirit. Work in it. Uh, work us. Work in it in us according to your good pleasure, and remind us that you are in control. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. On the night when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he said to them, I've longed to eat this meal with you. And it was that night that he instituted a new meal. He instituted this meal that we continue to celebrate. This meal that no longer looks forward to the Passover event, but this meal that looks back upon it. This meal where the true Passover lamb uh, is signified. The bread represents his body as it is torn to pieces, and the wine represents his blood as it is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And it is not these elements, but what they point to, the body and blood of Jesus, that preserves and protects God's people from the wrath of God. And so as we come to this meal today, I would ask, are you protected? Is the blood of Christ over the door of your life? Have you been marked out? What does that mean? It means very simply that you have professed your faith in Christ. That you have looked to Him in faith for salvation. Because He promises that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so today as we come to celebrate this meal, our Savior celebrates it with us. It's like this table extends into heaven. And Jesus, who sits there enthroned on high, still bearing the marks of the cross, gives us these elements and he says, here, this is my body and my blood. But he gives it to his people. He gives it to those who are marked by that blood. And so if you belong to Christ, if His blood is over your life, then you should come to this meal today 
And you should come with joy and gladness and readiness to receive these things from His hand. But if, if you do not yet belong to Christ, then let me ask you to just let these elements pass today. But I would also call upon you not to miss the true Passover. Because God is, is coming again. He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. And that day, uh, the author of Hebrews says, it will not be for judgment upon those who are eagerly waiting for him. It will be to rescue them. And so as we come to this meal today, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for these visible, tangible, sensible signs in which you remind us that all of God's wrath has been handed over to you. All the wrath that we deserve for our sins, all the anger and the punishment that is due to us has been handed over to you and you have handed over yourself unto death so that we might receive these elements as a cup of blessing that we bless. And so Lord, we pray that we would receive them in that way with thankfulness and gratitude And Lord, I pray that if there are those here who do not know you, who are not under the blood of your Son, Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance unto life, that they would feel their need of you, and that they would look to you in faith and trust in you, that they would not judge things by what they see. What they saw at Calvary was a wicked, cruel death for the most beautiful and glorious salvation of your people. And so, Lord, now uh, we pray that you would help us to receive these elements with faith, not by sight. By sight, they are just a crusty piece of bread and a little shot of wine. But by faith, these things are the grandest banquet that heaven can afford, the very body and blood of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.